0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to the State of Play podcast, episode twenty. As you can tell by my accent, I'm not Pat Parisha. I'm Martino Pugio. Uh, alongside me is Matt Santangelo. Uh, as always, what's going on, Matt? I'm doing pretty well, Martino. It's uh, it's as, as much as I love
1: to hear Pet's sultry, um, in British voice. It's uh, it's good to uh, to have you in the hosting chair. I know we've done plenty of podcasts for Soccer Showdown, so I'm sure we'll be able to carry on in Pet's. Uh, absence I know he's a little under the weather but if the show goes on there's always football to talk about so uh, yeah I'm, a re- I'm ready, ready to go when you are
0: yeah I'm, I'm ready to get this thing started guys I'm really excited uh, to be here obviously I'm producing the show for the guys and stepping in when need be like today um, so yeah there's so much football to get into we're gonna be getting into so many topics but before we do that we want to talk about our giveaway that we're having um, since we're celebrating 1,000 followers on Twitter. So, Matt, do you just want to give uh, all the information out on uh, that and what everybody can do to enter?
1: Sure. So, um, obviously, we just hit our 1,000 follower milestone on Twitter. If you guys aren't following us, make sure you guys do so, at State of Play Pod. Um, we are working with the North Curve. I'm sure many of you guys are familiar with what they uh, what they provide. A lot of vintage stuff, very good quality Um, And we're doing kind of a a nice little giveaway to give back to you guys, the uh, the followers. Uh, Obviously, you guys can check out our our account for more information on how to enter the giveaway. But in short, we're giving out a Milan uh, long-sleeve tee. This is all part of one one package one lucky winner will get. A Maradona Boca sweatshirt, a Marseille short-sleeve t-shirt, and a Cantona pillow or cushion, whatever you want to call it. So make sure you guys are following us and retweeting the post that we have um on our Twitter account. I'll always share that for you guys so you guys have it fresh. Subscribe to the pod, leave us a nice review of course, and then reply with a screenshot below just to confirm you uh you've you've done that review and um that's all you guys need to do and we'll announce the winner on November first. So um uh, yeah we appreciate any subs, any reviews, any feedback you guys can give us. It'll only help us grow. It'll only help further this podcast and ultimately give us uh a little bit more uh Headway into the podcast game, which is very competitive, but we're, we're excited to be back. Obviously, if you guys didn't listen to the previous episode, make sure you guys do that. But um, that's pretty much it, Martina. I'm ready to get started when you are.
0: Oh, yeah, man. I mean, look, people, people get bummed out about international break all the time, but there's always storylines. You just got to know where to look, right? So we're going to be heading over to the Premier League to start, again, a league that is never short of storylines. Um, there's a lot to get into to this, so we're just going to dive right in. Um, we're going to start with Chelsea, right? Um, especially over here in the States where you and I are both from, there's always talk about Chelsea simply for the fact that Christian Pulisic plays for them, right? The big money move over there in the summer started a couple games in there, um, at the start of the season and just hasn't really been seeing any time. And it's been interesting because it was kind of funny in my opinion, where, uh, Greg Verhalter sent him home or <laughs> sent him back to Chelsea early so he could focus on uh, uh, Chelsea and he just wasn't getting any minutes, uh, oddly enough. Mason Mount's kind of been occupying the spot in the 11 in which you would assume Christian would operate in. Um, and look, it's really interesting to see such a massive money move, right? Because over here in America, I think a fair analogy would be whenever someone gets a huge contract in our sports they have to play right it's almost as if teams feel that they're obligated to play x player because they paid x player a certain amount of money and in this case Chelsea play paid tens of millions of dollars for Christian Pulisic so everyone's sentiments over here in the states are that you have to play him you spent all this money on him it hasn't they don't even think about you know the development getting adjusted to one of the toughest leagues in the world etc so what do you have like taken away from this whole situation well i think you
1: did you know a great point of kind of detailing um the kind of comparison or the expectation that uh, many americans have um you know when they do look at the premier league and and really european football in general right i think it's a much different league obviously we talked about in the previous episode from major league soccer but it's also a different um, process when players move from team to team club to club if you will Everyone's so used to the free agency, uh, uh, NBA frenzy, and it's a very exciting, but it's a much different system. And when people saw that Christian Pulisic, his confirmed move from Borussia Dortmund to Chelsea, obviously it came to an agreement in January, but he didn't make that move official and permanent um, and really and essentially make the full transition over to England until the summer. They signed Pulisic under Maurizio Tsari. Then you bring in Frank Lampard in here and, you know, it's not always going to be a, a, a match made in heaven right away, at least from the jump. You know, I, right now for Lampard, he's coming into a club where they want to see results. They obviously had a good successful year last year. They made it into the top four. They won a Europa League trophy. Maurizio sorry, left. So obviously Lampard would love to find a way to appease everybody. But I think the fact of the matter is, is he knows that as a former player for Chelsea, he's trying to get the most results out of his club. And essentially for uh, his job, which obviously doesn't seem like it's always so secure when you're managing the, the Blues, ask ask any of the guys <laughs> before him. Um, Roman Vranovic, the owner, has a very short leash. She seems to go from almost season to season, if you will. So with that in mind, Lampard's going to play the players that uh, ultimately can help him get results. And he's not going to be so much into favorites and favoritism. Now, that's obviously going to have an effect on the men's national team, right? And how we observe Pulisic overseas. Pulisic has been considered and widely considered by many in this uh, football market... As the next, the, the big superstar, the this gener- the, the U.S. men's national team's uh, top, you know, they're 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 golden boy of the generation. So it's only it's only natural that they're going to be a little bit of concerned, a little bit alarmed when they see him not getting the necessary minutes he needs, because that obviously has an effect on the progression of this project under you mentioned Greg Berhalter. So look, I, I don't, I think if if you have the quality, you have the talent eventually it's going to shine through and eventually on the training ground you keep your head down and you work hard i'm always a firm believer of that that eventually you'll get noticed eventually your time will come and eventually you'll get the minutes to show what you're capable of doing and i think it's only a matter of time before pulisic does that there are injuries that come into play there are the, the middle grounds of the season where the matches start pile up and especially in the premier league where they all have to multiple cup tournaments they have the european competitions and of course they have the premier league competition there's going to be a lot of minutes to go around, and at some point Pulisic is going to get his opportunity, and it's just going to be a matter of whether or not he makes the most of it. So I wouldn't be too alarmed. I think there's a lot of people that are looking at this, and they're kind of having their 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 American hat on, and they're not really looking at the bigger picture in that, yeah, Pulisic had a, was, was pretty solid with Borussia Dortmund. He's still a young player, although he has quite a bit of minutes under him and reps, and obviously his responsibility with the men's national team looms large. He's still young in, in, in terms of his, his career, and he really has to understand that he has to keep working hard. He has to prove to his manager that he is deserving of the minutes. And look, Mason Mount is having a good year for them. He's, he's, he's putting up numbers. He's a an academy player. And, you know, at some point, a lot of those players take precedence, the fans take to them a little bit more. So Pulisic is going to get his opportunity, it's just going to be a matter of time. But uh, regardless, it's it must be good for Chelsea to have options. I don't think they anticipated uh, many of their younger players, their academy players having such an impact early on in the season. Um, you could even look at Tandy Abraham, too. Obviously, they got Ruben off his cheek. They have Kurt Zouma. So they have several guys that they're finally integrating into the system where, in many years prior, they were neglected. They were sent out on loan. Everyone talks about how many um, players go out on loan for Chelsea each year. But to see some of the players finally get that opportunity, it's unfortunate for Pulisic, but you got to prove yourself. You, you're not just going to be handed minutes in the Premier League for a club like Chelsea. That's that's not how it works.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, and I think a point that kind of gets you know, brushed under the rug, I I I guess you could say, is that Mason Mount was playing for Frank Lampard last year at Derby, right? So there's more of a familiarity there, too. Um, And and again, Mason, I think it's just the fact that it's not that he is playing better at the moment, too. I think there's just a, a better identity of what is expected from Frank Lampard's teams, right? Because you can't just, you know... Take that away because it's a very difficult job for Frank Lampard to take over, right? Even if he knows the club, like you mentioned it, he was there as a player. How many, the guy probably had more managers and seasons played for Chelsea and he played over a decade at Chelsea. So, I mean, it's it's really insane um, to think about. But I think you're right. I think um, U.S. fans need to just calm down a little bit. Uh, Christian's got to work for everything he's going to get is going to have to earn it himself and uh, you know, move on from there. He's going to get his opportunities. There's a ton of matches that Chelsea will be in. They're going to be in the Champions League race uh, for third or fourth for the whole season. So they're definitely going to be interesting there. Um, so moving over to the international break side of things, staying within England. Um, a lot of storylines just within the two games. Um, they just wrapped up playing Bulgaria today and that one had a lot of controversy in it. Well, we won't touch on that too much, but the, the other big story was that England lost their game against the Czech Republic 2-1, to one, right? Gareth Southgate had a, a lot of controversial selections within his 11. Um, you know, I think it's indefensible. We were talking about this in our chat uh, with you, me, and Pet, that I think we all agreed that it's really indefensible not to start Trent Alexander-Arnold, right? Uh, I mean, Kevin Drupier he does well he plays at a big club like atletico we know what he did for spurs but when you have someone like alexander arnold who is young proven champions league winner i mean i don't know how you don't start him in a match like that right i mean what did you think of some of these selections here
1: i i think look southgate from what he was able to accomplish with the english team at the world cup I think he's done better than most managers if I had been in his position uh, previously. But I think it's 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 English England fans have seen these things go sour and go sideways quickly, and I think that's what's kind of the biggest thing. And when you see them, when you see Southgate go with some of his different players and go some a bit questionable decisions with, uh, with uh, his starting eleven, and you lose, that's where people start to say like, "Why are you fooling around with it?" Like I, for I, for one, I'm I'm okay with a team kind of flexing a little bit um, when you have that depth, when you have that ability to say, hey, you know what, we're gonna take out this guy, we're gonna put this guy who's just as good. And I think there's very there's a handful of nations who can do that. But I think for the most part, until you've actually clinched something and you've secured that Euro twenty twenty berth, I don't think pe- uh, people should be accepting. Uh, of what Southgate is doing with some of his selections. Obviously, you mentioned uh, Alexander Arnold not playing, Chilwell, Joe Gomez, just to name a few. When you lose, it looks even worse. Obviously, if they would have won, people probably would have still brought it up in the media because English media is very harsh. It's very critical. Uh, there, Everything that is being done is magnified, whether it be for the Premier League clubs or whether it be for the national team, of course, with a lot of pressure there. For me, though, the fact that they are finally having options or the least Southgate is looking at his squad and he's looking at the entire pool of players he has to choose and he's saying, well, I got options. I don't have to run Alexander Arnold to the ground. I could put Trippier in there. I could put Danny Rose. I could put Michael Kane in there and I can still get a good showing, a good outing out of there without running these players uh, into the ground and obviously running the risk of uh, you know injury, right? Because that's also a difficult thing for a national team manager There's that many people don't understand is that, yeah, just because you have the players, you also have to balance... You know, not completely beating them up, completely draining them, where when they're going back to their clubs, they're not in prime position to continue on their positive run of form. It's a long season. There's a lot of matches. It's a lot of traveling, a lot of back and forth, a lot of grueling training sessions. So I I can understand why Southgate maybe thought about this, because maybe on paper he was saying look, Czech Republic, they're not, you know, they're not a Belgium, they're not a Spain, they're not some of these, a top, top nation. No disrespect to Czech Republic. They have some quality on that team. But I think he probably, if you ask him again what he would have done differently, I think he would have maybe uh, tinkered a little bit less and kind of ensured himself a little bit more of a a, a comfortable performance where they could have gotten a win. But the fact that they weren't able to bounce back and get a big, big victory over Bulgaria, as you mentioned, a lot of controversy there with uh, racial chants towards... um, Tyrone Mings, uh, you know uh, Nazi salutes in the stadium. It's it's inexcusable to see something like that happen. Obviously, England getting a victory. It's it, it shows that they were able to rise above that despite some of the distractions. It's not easy. Obviously, I can't um, you know, say I've ever dealt with what they were dealing with, but at the same time, for them to get a big victory after the defeat to Czech Republic and in those circumstances, um, it speaks volumes. And that's something that that could they you know Southgate's uh, squad can rally around, but. You know, just on this, this entire match and what we saw, real quickly, because I think it's always worth shedding light on this and bringing awareness to it, is, and I feel we do it quite often on this podcast, it's, for me, the fact that I'm kind of, it's kind of, it feels just like another instance, just shows you how how little is being done. On, the, on behalf of okay. all the FAs, the associations uh, across the world because I don't think this is a an England thing or a, something that's happening in England or in Italy all, alone. We're, we're seeing it everywhere. It's a global problem. And it's a global problem in this sport. And for me to see this and, and just to kind of, you know, while I'm working, throw on my Twitter account and seeing like all racial chants and, you know, Nazi salutes, discrimination and, you know, all these sorts of things, it's, you don't expect expect that to be happening in 2019 but then again you kind of do because we've seen it so many times and we've seen no action being taken against some of these 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 cowards and look getting back to before i go too much on that topic because i think we could spend quite a bit on on the topic of racism and discrimination in football and current modern football uh, i think england are in a good position i think that game against czech republic southgate probably would have done it differently but having said that, I think England fans are, are a little bit more optimistic and, and they like the fact that, you know what, maybe Southgate probably would have tinkered less. They could have got the result in that one, but they probably applaud his ambition for saying, look, I have a, a, good, I have a lot of talent that I believe in. I'm going to run out a trip here. I want to make sure and I want to make him clear that I want to make these players a part of my... Uh, my squad, I want that competition because competition within the squad breeds excellence and we always talk about it with Italy, perfect example, you and I as, as huge Italy fans, how for many years Italy didn't have a lot of talent in their, in that pool, now all of a sudden they got options and if a manager like Mancini rotates you can't be too critical of him because he's got options and you want to keep players uh, battling, you want to keep them fresh, you want to keep them ready to go and ultimately feel that they have some sort of worth within this framework, so Obviously, England got a one-sour result on Friday, but they bounced back in a big way, and we'll have to see what the fallout is of what happened with the uh, with the Bulgarian fans.
0: Yeah, I think I think somebody somebody please take precedent for this. I mean, this is it's getting out of hand. Whether it's UEFA makes a stance on it or FIFA has to come down and crack on it themselves. I think you're right. I mean, again, we've talked about this uh, multitude. Of like multiple times on uh, the Soccer Showdown podcast as well. I mean, it's just issue after issue, and no one seems to have done a great job at it. I know they've done a pretty good job in the Premier League, uh, where there were some issues there last season, and they did their best to try and work on it. But you're right. I mean, there really needs to be a lot of action taken. And again, look, I I kind of understand where you're coming from with the Gary Southgate thing. I I, I know there's so many options. You see, you see lineups get changed up a lot. But I don't think it was the right time for England to do that, right? Because I think they should just worry about qualify first, then tinker later. Because if you mess around like this and you lose like you did against the Czech Republic and it comes back to bite you in the butt, then, you know, it's an even bigger issue. So so good win for England there. Hopefully something will get solved. Uh so back to club football, right? that now this topic we'll be moving over to France. This was so funny because um the second you guys recorded episode 19, uh, you guys discussed Leon and Leon sector manager. What, like 20 minutes after we published the episode out? <laughs> so pretty much. Um, and they went with our, our guy, Rudy Garcia, used to coach out uh, with Roma in Italy. Uh, he's been all around in France, um, just with Marseille last year, I believe. And... They appoint him now. They just have nine points in the first nine games in the Ligue 1 campaign. This is their worst start since 1995-96. It was was the first year I was alive, just to give some perspective to people. So uh, it's not really a great uh, start for them there. Um, So tell me, what do you you think about the situation at Lyon? Do you think this was a, a smart hire for them? Because this is a familiar name within... The football world—it's um, probably the safest option that they had at their disposal. Now,
1: yeah, I, I think. Look, we we talked about it on the previous episode. I'm not going to go too much into it because I think we did a good job of kind of more or less recapping Leon's current situation. But I will say that Rudy Garcia does have a wealth of experience coaching um, in on. He's uh, his body of work is pretty pretty long. So the fact that you can go with a guy who is familiar with the league, you're bringing him in to steady the ship, essentially, right? Obviously we know what Leone has in terms of quality in that squad that goes with that saying. it just it's just finding the guy to get it out of that squad and to kind of turn this thing around. When I look at Rudy Garcia, I don't look as maybe a long-term solution for Leone. I think Leon have a good project. I think that look, when you look at their current situation and the league they're in, I don't think it's beyond the realm of possibility for them to turn this around, for them to find their rhythm, find their footing, and then kind of find, more or less find themselves back in that position and zone in the table where we believe they should be, right? Top four club competing, you know, in the thick of things and kind of giving some of those uh, clubs like Marseille, PSG, uh, a run for their money. So Rudy Garcia is, is a manager that I think could study the ship for Lyon, no doubt. It's just going to be a matter of whether or not the players take to them, right? And I think we've seen this so many times is that sometimes it's a good switch, sometimes it's a bad switch, right? With a, when, when clubs are, 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 are free-falling, The easiest decision to make is... Okay, well look at the manager. Because you can't transfer players out. You can't sell certain players. You have to deal with that behind closed doors. But when the manager... They're always the first one on the chopping block. They're always the first one talking to the media. And it just wasn't working out. So you bring in Rudy Garcia... To kind of uh, establish some sort of continuity, continuity... Excuse me, within the squad. Some consistency. And it could take a couple weeks. But you have to do it during the international break. And for me to see Rudy Garcia in a league that he's comfortable with. He was just at Marseille. Of course, that's a big club in, in, in France. I don't think this is a, a, a bad move whatsoever. I think, you, you know, Lyon are bringing uh, someone who can be a, a, a short term, maybe a seasonal option. And then you know, if all things go according to plan, they go well, maybe he does get that extension and he's able to be at the club for, for beyond this year. But, I don't have any, any issues with it. I think, again, you touched on their their, their, uh, their rough start. They have nine points from the first nine games. their worst total at this stage since 1995-96. Uh, for a team that has that much talent, a wealth of talent, and that did pretty well in the Champions League last year, I recall, I recall they actually beat Manchester City, who who is a favorite to win the title at the Champions League title. Uh, there's got to be something that maybe we didn't really learn with, with Silvino. Uh, the previous manager, and with Rudy Garcia stepping in, I think there is opportunity for him to show that he, he is up for the job. He is uh, uh, you know, capable of turning this thing around.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's really going to be interesting to see everything that Rudy Garcia is going to be capable of pulling off because, look, you're right. I mean, it's not an easy situation when you're averaging one point per game and you were just playing in the Champions League, as you mentioned. So it's definitely going to be interesting to see what he's going to be able to salvage out of that. There's a lot of games left, so uh, it'll be exciting to see what he could do there. Um, some more news uh, regarding France and international break. Neymar. I mean, he's hurt with a thigh injury. He's out for a month, right? And it's getting really bad at this point, in my opinion. Um, in terms of this being a annual occurrence with him, this isn't quite like the other injuries that he's had in the past, you know, where he's out for an even longer period of time than just four weeks, right? Um, this is an a reoccurring thing where he just simply can't stay healthy for a full season. And it's not like he's picking up, you know, a little minor knocks, uh, like small soft tissue injuries, uh, where he has to sit out a game or two precautionary-wise. It's always extended, you know, it's always a few weeks on top of that. And in a season where PSG... In my opinion, if they can put it all together, they could be sneaky in the Champions League and really give any team they face a run for their money, considering all the firepower that they have, a solid midfield, and, and a solid core at the back, right? I think on their best day, they can compete with anybody. But again, with Neymar here, the controversy surrounding his future, whether it be at PSG, whether it not be at PSG, I mean, I mean what does this do for him? Because they have... They have some important Champions League matches coming up within the next few weeks. Uh, do they manage well without him? Like, How do you see this going? Because a lot, of, a lot of the time, PSG don't do well in his favor. We saw what happened against Manchester United uh, in this Champions League last year. So, I mean, you tell me, Like, what, what do you really take away from this?
1: Well, I think, you, look, when you're looking at Neymar, um, he's, he's always he's a fascinating subject, and for, for many reasons. He's, he's a generational talent. He's sensational. Anyone who disagrees with that is, hasn't watched him play, they don't watch football. For, for people's opinions of him to be clouded or to be overtaken by the fact that maybe he is a little bit more theatrical on the pitch. He does exaggerate and embellish in certain moments where it makes him look bad. But when you look at him and you put those things aside and you take off any sort of biased hat you may have and you say, is Neymar a world-class player? He absolutely is. When he's healthy and he's and he's right where he wants to be and he's comfortable and he's confident and he's in good in good territory and in good environment where he feels he can thrive, He's one of the top three, top four, top five players in football. Now it's becoming a case where, compounded with the fact that he wanted to force a move away to Barcelona, it didn't happen, everything in the media now saying he feels that he's playing all this his home games, they feel like away games because the home fans are not happy with the way things went down in the summer. You put that on top of the injuries now. He's not able to be out there consistently to, to show that he was worth that big transfer fee, to show that, hey, you know what, despite... How things maybe occurred in the summer, I can still, you know, commit to this club. I can still, you know, put that aside. I can still turn in those world class performances that you know the, the the club paid for me to bring. But when you're injured, you can't do that, right? And I think that's what always people always talk about, right? This guy's good. This guy's great. He could be. Oh, he's got world class potential. But it's availability. And I think in many ways, look, I hate hate to keep bringing up Ronaldo, Messi but specifically Ronaldo, but you look at a guy like him, 34, 35 years old, his entire career, he just scored his 700th goal today. He's the epitome of reliability, epitome of fitness, epitome of I'm always going to be available. You never have to worry about a guy like Ronaldo, you know, when the the dog days of the season are coming and you just got three to four or five games in a span of 16, 17, 18 days, he's going to be there for you. Up front, he's going to be consistent. He's going to be contributing. He's going to be in the thick of things and in the thick of your objectives. And I think that's what makes it difficult for Neymar is that he is a little bit on the thinner side. He isn't as exactly as physically a beast, if you if you call it like it is, like a Ronaldo and, and no one really is, or even like a Zlatan Ibrahimovic. But it's not even so much of his body size. You feel that it's just one of those things where is he ever going to be healthy enough? Is he ever going to be the guy that can handle that? Big workload and of more physical league. Can, can he stay healthy? Can he be that ne- this next generation's uh, Messi or Ronaldo, like many people thought he would be? And look, you can't be that way, and you can't be put in that category, um, you know, for your entire career if you can't stay healthy. And for me, that's the, that's the most alarming thing we see with him. With this, with this injury, he could be at four weeks. He's going to miss, I believe, two games in the Champions League against Club Bruges, the back-to-back games, of course, the home-and-away games. Uh, PSG, I expect them to handle that, although P- Club Bruges did give um, Real Madrid some fits in the Champions League. And you know PSG are in a comfortable position within the league. But I think, ask any PSG event. They're not saying, well, you know, the league... Well, no, they want more than the league. They've been doing that. Their ambition has been... To compete at the top level in the Champions League since 2011, 2012, when they got guys like Pastore, uh, Cavani, Ibrahimovic, Thiago Silva, the list goes on and on and on. And obviously Mbappe and and Neymar, they want to win the Champions League, and they know they need Neymar uh, healthy. They need him available for for selection for Thomas Tuchel. So, look, it's 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 one of those things where every time you turn around, he's injured and he's out for, as you mentioned not one game here, one game there where okay, you know, he picked up a knock, he's not he's not fit. They're not going to risk him, he'll be ready for the next game. These are big injuries. These are four weeks, five weeks and he feels like you're getting one or two per season. And that's where at this point in time of his career, if they're not one-offs, now you have to start questioning, does this can this guy stay healthy to be the, the the player we all think he could be? And time will tell. Obviously, at the end of his career when it's all said and done, we'll look at the body of work and we'll say, you know what? He had all the all the ability in the world to be world class and one of the best players ever, but he just couldn't stay on the pitch. And ultimately, talent only can bring you so much. It's what you show, and we see that time and time again with so many players. Right? For whatever reason, whether it be their 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 temperament, their mentality, their way, their their dedication to the game, it's 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 all got to be put on to put on display at once. And if you're not available for your manager, you can't you can't be a producer. And that's what we're seeing here with Neymar.
0: Yeah, I mean, again, like the saying goes, the best ability is availability, right? I mean, if you look at Neymar's career as a whole at the end, right, if this continues, how crazy would it be to think when his career started at Barcelona to say that Neymar never won a Ballon d'Or award. It just feels like we're robbed of something. It kind of feels like he would be robbed of something, right? Because he is that good. I think you're right. He is a generational talent. And I think when he's healthy and on his game, he is the third best player in the world. And I don't think it would be a discussion at that point. But nonetheless, hopefully he gets that all figured out and hopefully becomes the player that we all want him to be, right? So now moving over to the Bundesliga, baby. Uh, this is this is your guy, right uh everyone knows that you're polish and italian on top of being american as well robert lewandowski man i mean he is just so unbelievable and i think he's just one of the players of a generation that is gonna be remembered better when he's done playing as opposed to when he is currently playing of course he gets to a ton of praise he plays at one of the biggest clubs in the world his scoring record speaks for itself right especially at the start of this season um but to, talk to me about him man i mean you gotta love this guy he had a hat trick versus lativia two assists versus macedonia they clinch get into euro 2020 um there's oh there's oh he always catches a little bit of flack of you know not stepping up in the biggest of games sometimes but he's got 17 and 14 games for club and country this season tell me about your boy man i mean he is just on fire oh he's listen I've, i i
1: will defend this guy until that told that t- 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 and obviously on Twitter, dude, as you mentioned, there's a lot of flack he gets for, um, for not you know, producing in the big games. And you, know, you can ask Polish fans, and I think there's more to it than just, well, he's not scoring in big games. I think there's uh, the managerial situation with Poland's national team. Of course, they did qualify for the Euro 2020 um, yesterday with a big victory over Macedonia. He had two assists in that game for Frankowski and for Milik. And obviously, a couple days earlier, he had a hat-trick for Latvia. So he's quite clearly, if he's the guy that makes Poland tick, if he's not producing, if he's not firing on all cylinders, then Poland are going to have a very difficult chance of, of winning and going far um, in next summer's Euro. His numbers for Bayern speak for himself, but I will say this, though. I think this is a very, very, very important 2019-2020 for him because he's getting at that point where he is 30, 31 years old, and... He's hitting his. He's got you know. He's in the prime right now. He's got plenty of years left in him. He's starting to score the big goals for Bayern Munich. Obviously, a couple weeks ago, he had that great performance uh, for Bayern Munich. That backheel goal, and then he the backheel uh, over the head flick, and then he winds up finding the way, find his way in position to get the goal. His talent's undeniable. His talent is really undeniable. And for me, you know, you could call me a, a Lewandowski Homer. Call me whatever you like. He's the best striker right now in football on current form. When he is clicking, he is the best striker in football. And his numbers speak for themselves. I think, you know, Poland have to, if we're just speaking on Poland for a bit, I know we have a question at the end um, from one of our, our, our listeners. This is the era for Poland to do something special. I'm not saying win a tournament, but this is their gap here. Because I think if you ask anybody, if you look at the squad they do have, they have talent in there top to bottom they do have players they have several players that are applying their trade in Serie A with Piotr Zelensky just to name one, uh, Wojciech Szczesny is a, a number one choice for Juve over Julian Ligi Buffon like Kamil Kalik they have um, you know a lot of younger players coming through the ranks. David Kalnaski, Jan Bernarek playing in the Premier League so it's not a matter of, of the talent around him it's just a matter of everyone putting it together at the same time and Jersey Bergex is uh, you know he's not doing a great job with The the talent he has. Yes, people from optics, people will say, well, look, he got you to qualify for Euro. That's a mission accomplished, right? But if you look at the entire picture and you ask any Poland fan, they've seen this so many times. Well, we have a lot of talent, but it's getting the most out of it. We started the World Cup in 2018 where off that 2016 Euro performance, people were saying, okay, Poland's got something here. They pushed Germany to the edge in that tournament. And if they were able to find a way to get past, um, I believe it was Portugal, in that, in that tournament, who knows? Maybe they do find a way to win the Euro 2016. It's a stranger things have happened, but the point I'm trying to make is, is that I think Lewandowski's career is going to be defined, when it's all said and done, by his trophies. His numbers are great. If you look at his numbers, he's, he's fantastic for Borussia Dortmund, for Bayern Munich, for Poland. He's Poland's all-time leading scorer. He's the captain. He's only 31, 32 years old. He's going to just continue to pad his stats, and that's never been in doubt. But it's him scoring in big games. Him taking his performances to the next level for Bayern and for Poland, where he can say, you know what, I am I am a big-time performer. I can do more than just score goals against clubs where they are maybe inferior to, to Bayern and Poland. And I think that's going to be the biggest thing. You see his record in Euro qualifying, but you also saw his record of World Cup qualifying. He can carry Poland at times where he needs it, but at the same time, He's a striker. He's a different striker where he does require that support, just like many other players do. There's very few who can create for themselves in that position. So he needs certain players to step up, and that's what I'm hopeful of. As a, as a as a uh, with with that Polish DNA in me, is that you know Lewandowski can finally grow to be that big time performer that I know he's capable of. But for whatever reason, maybe the players around him are not elevating to the game at his level um, for him to show it and, and prove that once and for all, he he can be put in that category as one of the greats of this generation.
0: Yeah, yeah, I I totally agree. Um... There's a lot of parallels I kind of draw with him and Aaron Robin, another former Bayern legend, that everybody knew how good they were, and they stepped up, and the numbers were always there, but it was just getting over the hump, winning that Champions League final, right? We saw how many times Bayern failed to do that until they won against Dortmund, and where Robin kind of, you could see, it was just a weight lifted off his shoulders when he scored that goal against Dortmund late in that match. Um, I, I think I think that moment's coming for Lewandowski. I think... You know, it's it's not so much that he needs to prove it to himself. Like, he does need to prove it to himself. Like, it's got to be on paper, like, that he scored that goal at that time in that kind of match, you know? And I think he's totally capable of it, and, and I understand where the disappointment creeps in with Poland because, unfortunately, they were one of the more disappointing teams at the World Cup in 2018, right? I thought they were a shoo to get out of the group, and it just didn't come to fruition, but I, I, I think there's a lot of reasons to be positive and hopefully they have a great tournament come summertime, right? Um, Italy now. Now this is something you and I always talk about all the time. Um, lots of movement going on there in terms of Serie A club football and then how great they've been playing for the Euro qualifiers. So we'll stick to Serie A football first and then we'll move on over to the otsuri so, a couple of sackings happen, right? Di Francesco from Sampdoria and former Sampdoria and now former Milan coach Marco Giampaolo are gone. Um, look, I mean, really quick to touch on Di Francesco before I move on to Giampaolo. Di Francesco, I mean, look, he took over a kind of difficult situation at Sampdoria, right? They were getting rid of some of their best players that were under um, uh, Giampaolo. Qualiarella wasn't going to duplicate what he did last year. Um Overall, it just wasn't good enough to get the job done, right? It seems that, unfortunately, the way he is trending, it seems like he's going to be remembered as that guy who took Roma all the way to the semifinals in the Champions League one year. Um, I think he is a better coach than to be known for that. I think he's more of a mid-tier, mid-table coach um, for clubs like Sampdoria. I, I just don't think the fit was so great and the timing of it. Um, so hopefully he'll find a job eventually who knows maybe he'll take a year off or so I think there'll be a job eventually opening up for him whether it be in Italy or any other league around uh, the continent so best of luck to him unfortunately it didn't work out there and look Marco Gianpaolo Milan what can we say right we talk about this ad nauseum um, together you could see it on Twitter all the time this was just a flat out failure at Milan right I mean it. he had the shortest stint of a manager at Milan in recent memory, and I think, correct me if I'm wrong, in history, um, with just under a shade of 111 days, I mean, I understand where he was coming from. He didn't really get the players that he needed for his system, but in today's day and age, in a transfer market, you're not going to be able to do that all in one summer, especially considering that all the assets, quote-unquote, that Milan have, there's a lot of players on high wages that simply aren't just going to be able to move to a different club. They're not going to take that wage cut because, Logically speaking, why would you want to take a wage cut when you're getting paid such great wages, right? A Bordini of the world there, Hakan Celanoglu, and the list goes on, right? Same with Pepe Reina, he's getting 3 million euros. Um, thank you, Faso Belli, for that, right? Um, so, I mean, look, Milan were just not playing up to standards, right? They just missed the Champions League by one point, and they just came out flat like I've never seen a Milan club really start a season with, Um I mean, you tell me. I, I think I've discussed this enough. I know you've discussed it at length. Like, what what do you make of these two situations? But in particularly the Gianpaolo situation with Milan.
1: I think it was uh, many ways somewhat similar to what happened with Leon, right? You know, yeah, there's some talent there. Uh, maybe you know there could be more. I don't think Milan's talent level is on the same same, you know, uh, gear, uh, or or tier, if you will, as a Napoli, as a Juve, as an Inter, but there's more in the squad than what we're seeing, and that's the biggest thing and biggest concern for, for me, or really big, that was the biggest concern when I saw Gianpaolo, is that I'm not, no one's expecting Gianpaolo's, or was expecting Gianpaolo's Milan to be world beaters, to be a club that can go toe-to-toe at Juve, knock them down, beat Inter impressively, like, They just wanted to see progression. They wanted to see a team that was saying, hey, look, we got a new manager. He's got some fresh faces. We're going to bring these these players in. We're going to go out with the the squad that we have, and we're going to start to build something. Build a squad that is capable of competing effectively for a top four the entire season. Not have a a good 2 to 3 months at the uh, towards the, the middle of the season and then kind of taper off and tail off and 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 it really me, uh, fail to meet expectations at the end which we've seen in the past couple of years for me Gianpaolo I think is is still a good manager I just think that he's not a manager that's equipped to to coach a club like Milan and it's nothing against him there's only so a select group of managers in my opinion in world football that can come into this Milan side with this squad and turn it around. It's not easy. It's easy when you're getting a club like maybe Manchester United when Jose Marino got there and saying, I want $200 million to spend on players. Milan is in a very precarious situation, very unique situation, where not only is the allure of coaching Milan dropped in recent years, although, again, they obviously still have the rich history, they have their cabinet, which goes without saying is very impressive, is that it's tough to convince a manager, that a big-time manager, to say, hey, look, come join Milan. They're saying, wait a second, you're changing ownerships pretty much every year, it feels like. Players are coming and going. There's always some sort of rift between a player here and a player there. For better or for worse, Milan are always in the media. It's tough to convince any sort of manager like a Conte, like a Sarri, to coach there when there isn't any sort of sign of stability or progression. And I think there's a lot of parallels and a lot of things you can draw, uh, compare between Milan and what Inter went through. Milan are obviously not at that same level as Inter, but I think Inter did go through a similar uh, era where, you know, they were going through managers left, right, front, and center with uh, Stamaccioni, they were going to brought Mancini back, the Frank De Boer situation where they got De Boer, the Pioli, and then the caretaker in one season. They went through their hardship. Then they got Spalletti, who steadied the ship. He gave him a couple solid seasons, back-to-back top four finishes. And sometimes, that's all you need. Just someone to steady the ship to get back to get Milan back into that conversation saying, Hey, look, we're not we're not there where we want to be, but more and, and more or less we're back. We're back in the thick of things. You can consider us uh, uh have having to return to being in the conversation as one of the better clubs in Italy. And it's not there yet for Milan. So when I look at Gianpaolo's situation, I understood why the sack happened. Now, I'm not a huge fan of Pioli. Uh, time will tell. Obviously, results tell everything in this game. I will say I think some of the uh, Pioli out movement and some of the tweets in, in, around that were were shocking to me. Starting worldwide. Some people were, were, were going off. Wait, They are going way too off. Pioli, he's, he's just a guy. He's saying, look, I'm unemployed. I'm on my couch. Like, I got a call, a chance to coach Milan to get paid, I think, over two years if I'm correct and a pretty good wage. Mm-hmm. Like, what do you think? He's not going to take that job? Come on, of course he's he's going to take that job. So you're really just you the the blame is going in the wrong place. If you want to blame someone for why things are the way they are, then you blame the people at the top right now. You could ah yes, the players. Some players haven't been playing performing to expectation. But at the end of the day, certain players shouldn't even be on this Milan team right now. They shouldn't be starting the way they're starting. Guys like Haka Chahana guys like uh, Musakio, Bilia. Uh, some of these guys, it's just they're 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 not Milan quality. But not to mention, even that is that you your your Maldini, Boban, and Matsara go out and get a handful of pretty good players. I'm not saying all of them are world class. I'm not saying any of them are world class. But I'm saying in that crop of players that they did get Teo Hernandez, Ismail Benacer, Afcon 2019 Player of the Tournament, uh, Rafael Leal, Leal, who's been pretty good for Milan, probably Milan's best player, most consistent. There is talent there and for him not to tap into that and to utilize that that's the most alarming thing and not to mention the fact that he bounced off he kind of completely pivoted off his 4312 formation which everyone knew him for at Sampdoria for the way he was able to revamp that squad and make them uh, a team that could play a nice effective offensive football so it, it just wasn't a fit you know he didn't show that he was trusting in his his, his ideas and his vision and the, what got him the job in the first place and I think if you don't show trust to yourself and his, and you know, look, say what you will about Maurizio Tsari for all the criticism he would get for not rotating. He knew what formation, he stuck by his guns. And when he didn't get the results that he needed, he felt the pressure of it. When they didn't, when Napoli didn't win the title, he got some pressure for that because you felt that it was their title to lose, their title to win, their title to lose, however you want to put it. But he sticks, he's steadfast, committed to what he believes in. And when you see a manager who comes into the job and he's unsure of himself, even despite having the entire summer to work with the team he has, that's alarming and it shows a guy who's just not fit for the job and he's, he's out of his element. I wish Gianpaolo the best. I, I just don't think it was a great fit. Pioli, he's got a tough task ahead of him. I think the expectations are low, but look, with this Pioli, Pioli out movement, I said it on the David Amoy Alcacholam podcast a couple times, I think that serves as motivation for him. He th- he's facing it from all ends. Uh, we don't think this guy's this manager's good. He don't think he's out of his he's out of his element. I don't know what he's, he's in over his head. What is he doing taking this job? Look, he's got nothing to lose. He steps into this job and does a great job. He's gonna be he's gonna say, look, I proved everybody wrong, and now I look like a hero for this club. Or if he steps out, look, I came in a difficult situation. I did the best I could, you know, given the circumstances. So time will tell. My expectations are pretty low, but I think people's blame and, and anger is misdirected at the wrong people. And the only way for Milan to turn this thing around is to start winning games. I don't even think it's down to necessarily performances. You want to see the performances go hand-in-hand with the positive results. But Milan just need to win games. They'll figure it out at some point during the season because the ebbs and flow of a tire season, they tend to kind of go back and forth. And somewhere down the line, Milan's going to hit some pretty good form. And it's just going to be a matter of whether or not it's enough. And I hope it's not the same situation as last year where... You know, Milan finally figured it out at certain points, but uh, they dropped points against teams they should have beaten. The opening match day, for example, against Udinese to be one. So against Torino, another another club. The club is very good. I, I I like Torino, but they had that game in their hand. They've outplayed Torino. They switched off for four to five minutes. Balotti beat them, and he dropped points again. It's not. Milan losing to Inter and Napoli and Juve and, and, and those clubs. It's dropping the points to the teams that they should be handling. And that's what did them in last year. So if Pioli is able to get results and he's able to play the players that the Milan fans want to see, that he should be playing, I think he's already going to be a, a favorite for Milan fans. Because I think those are the two things, essentially, that people didn't like from Gianpaolo. They They didn't appreciate the fact that you have talent. Maybe not a lot of it, but you're leaving Paqueta because you have an agenda against him for some stupid reason that he's, oh, he, he, he's he's, he has, he's shown too much of his Brazilian personality. He didn't say those exact words, but he's shown too much flair. He's got to be a little bit smarter with the ball. Paqueta's one of the most talented players on this squad. There's a reason why PSG and Leonardo want him, and they're looking at him still. So play the right players, try and get the results, and I think Pioli, at the end of the day, will be at least appreciated for that in that you know i gave i put my best my best foot forward i fielded my best squad and maybe i get the results maybe i don't but at the end of the day i'm gonna go out with what i believe in and these players and my formation and my ideas
0: yeah i mean look not much else to say there he's gotta write a very difficult ship there um hopefully again like you said i mean look Whatever the agenda was with Paulo against Paquetta, I'll say this. No 21-year-old's a finished product. Not everyone's going to be an Mbappe. No one, not everyone's going to be a Messi at that age, right? I mean, certain players get along at, at a different age, and hopefully he'll get that figured out, and I think he'll be staying for uh, for years to come, hopefully. Okay, back to international football. We'll really touch this up on Italy before we move on here. Dominance. This reminds me of... What Italy was like when we were growing up as kids, right? This is the fastest that they've ever clinched to get into a major tournament. Nonetheless, this upcoming Euros, which you could argue over the past decade, it was a very rough one for Italy and Azzurri fans like ourselves. But the one tournament that Italy always overachieved in it and always did pretty well in was the Euros, right? I mean, look, you go back to 2012, no one really envisioned them getting all the way to the final won't talk about the final because that was kind of a disaster, but still, you made it to a final. Um, 2016 with Conte, I mean, the job that he was able to do with all the talent and forwards that he had to work with on that team was just so fantastic. You go out on penalty kicks, um, but now, um, we're going to get into it later, uh, drop a hint on the player profile. There's just so many talented, young, upcoming players that Roberto Mancini is finally giving these guys a shot, right? because this was like another issue that we had with Ventura um, and coaches prior to that. Even Conte fell victim to this a few times. It's playing the young studs, right? Another thing that we were just talking about with Giampaolo. They might not be finished products. They might not be playing at the biggest of clubs, but there's a lot of talent around there in terms of midfielders, in terms of fullbacks, uh, guys to play up top, like Chiesas of the world, um, Sensi, Saborellas, um, you know, I I think Roberto Mancini has done such a nice job with this team. The defense has been on point. We know they're going to be out with Chiellini for a while, but Italy usually plays down to the competition. They did fall victim to that in some of their qualifying matches, but nonetheless, they've won every single game that they've played. They're in Euro 2020. What have you seen from them? What have you really liked from Mancini's men?
1: I've been thoroughly impressed with uh, with Mancini's Italy, I think there were some mixed reviews, mixed opinions of him when he took over the job. But I think the way he had jump, uh, Ventura left the job, I think it, it, could you have, only could, could have level. gone up from there. Obviously, uh, not Milan, Italy, not qualifying for the World Cup for 2018, uh, abysmal, uh, a dark day of, of Italian football. No, no, no doubt about it. But Mancini comes in, and not only does he get the results, I think everyone can quickly look at the results and say, 7 of 7, wow, Like they already crunched Euro 2020 birth. It's fantastic, and it is fantastic, to be, to be perfect. And, and, and with, with games in hand, three games in hand, essentially, where you can start to rest certain players, you can start to uh, uh, give minutes to other players, test some things out, and, and, and ultimately keep everyone fresh and ready to go. But the biggest thing for me is that he's uh, his expansion for youth, is has been very, very uh, impressive for me and, and 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 admirable for me because I think, you know, it's easy for a manager coming off the coming uh, coming into the job f- that he took over for Ventura to try and go with, well, oh, let's go let's play a little more conservative, let's go with what works because we need to get results and play with the veterans and play with the old guard and yada yada yada. But what he's done is that he's essentially brought along the current wave of young talent that, that we see on a regular basis in Italy, but he's also starting to set up the future generations for success. And I think that's very, very key, because if you look at top to bottom the squad that we saw against Greece, right, you're, you see Donnarumma as a young kid. This is going to be his first major tournament uh, with the senior team. You see the back line. Yes, you see that Bonucci's there, but Bonucci's, what, 31, 32 years old. Chiellini's probably done, in my opinion, although if he comes back and he's healthy, maybe he does get a spot on the roster. There's a good chance he will. Uh, but you're seeing guys like Romagnoli, you're seeing Acerbi you're seeing Spinazzola, you're seeing in the midfield, which is the biggest and most oppressive area for the Azzurri. Uh, I can name seven, eight guys in the midfield alone where I'm excited about. And for a while, Italy didn't have any sort of you know quality. Like like when you look at Italy's midfield, you're like, wow, they got these guys, players that are playing in the Champions League, players that are, can move the needle, players that can make a real difference. Uh, Jorginho, Verratti. Barella, Sensi, Pellegrini, who is injured, but we haven't seen him yet much because you know at this, this this campaign, because those other three I just mentioned, the four I just mentioned, have been sensational, and Mancini just simply can't take them out. Then you have even Cristante, who's playing for Roma, who's been pretty solid. You have Zaniolo, you have Tonali. There's a lot of options for Mancini to have, and it's refreshing to see. Finally, Italy has options. Long gone are the days of the Montelivos, the Parolos. Those guys who... The, the Giaccarinis. Those guys who are just not... They're not class midfielders. They're maybe good players, and they'll probably start for certain clubs in Italy. But when it comes to... On the main stage of, of international football, being able to perform and, and, and take this project forward, Italy finally had options. And I will credit Mancini for what seems like every call-up, every international break. Bringing one or two guys into the fold. He brought along Barella. What does he do? He, since he goes down, he brings in Tonali. Tonali may even play next game, right? Versus Lichtenstein. He may even play that game at at, at a very young age. And that's huge for him to play in a game where, you know what? There's not a ton of pressure, but he's getting those reps. He's getting that familiarity of what it takes to put on such a heavy shirt at a very difficult time um, after the World Cup failure. So overall, I'm very impressed with Mancini And I think, you know, there's really no not many, not much criticism I can give the guy Except for the fact that maybe there's the striker situation Which you can argue maybe Balotelli deserves an opportunity But at the same time, Immobile has been hot for Lazio Bellotti's been hot for Torino Those two guys are going to be the first two options for, for Mancini you know, going forward There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it Those two guys are going to be his main guys if Balotelli finds a way to get form for Brescia and he scores goals, I don't think the door's close on my, on Balotelli coming back. But at the same time, when you're playing in a one striker formation, there's really not many options and I think he's going to start the Mancini's going to lean on players that are a little bit more versatile like a Bernadeschi who can play in the midfield but can also play as a winger, can play behind the strikers. Insignia, just to name another one. So there's options, and I think that's really kind of the, the theme here for the Italian national team with this project, is that finally they have players that we can be excited about, that we're not saying, oh my gosh, why is he running out this player against this team? We need a win here, and he's, he's out of his element. I haven't had many complaints with, with his selections, and I think it's only going to continue to grow, 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 and this was the first step. Everyone knows this was the first step after the failures. Okay, Euro 2020. And quite frankly, after that failure, the future looked very dim. It looked very dim because a lot of the young players are like, where's the next generation coming from? Yes, you have the Veratis, you have Jorginho, you have a couple players here and there, but where's the next wave of talent? At that point in time, we didn't see Barella playing, Sensi playing. We didn't see some of these individuals. The fact that we just two years on from that from to that November twenty seventeen, I believe, or end of October twenty seventeen, we're finally seeing a project come into place quickly over a couple years time, and I think that's a big testament to the job that Mancini's been able to do.
0: Yeah, I'm definitely very exciting times if you're not Saudi fan, and I think there's going to be more players on the way. I mean, still just another two years away from the World Cup in Qatar, so it'll be definitely exciting to see the rest of that unfold for Saudi and see how they do in the summer. Now, moving over to La Liga, another player, well, La Liga, Spain, uh, because it's international, break. keep that theme going. We're talking about a player who plays in Serie A at Napoli, Fabian Ruiz. And, I mean, again, Napoli is just so savvy in the market with the way they're able to just buy certain players, plug them into their team, and, and they just flourish. Ancelotti has a great track record of developing players. Fabian is just one of those guys that has really flourished ...under the system in Serie A... Um, ...already seeing the links with the major clubs back in Spain... ...because he used to play for Betis before he went to Napoli, obviously. Um, uh, Barca, Real Madrid, they're going to be interested in him. Napoli wants to extend his contract and insert a big clause of 100 million euros within there. Um, I mean... Talk about him, man. I mean, he's just been such a revelation for Napoli, and, and I think he's going to be one of the anchors of the Spanish midfield uh, for many years to come.
1: 100%. Ruiz, was, uh, that was a, a slam-dunk operation by uh, Cristiano Gentoli from Napoli, the sporting director there, uh, two summers ago. I think to get him for, on, his, on his clause for $30 million from Real Betis, um, it was a no-brainer, right? And I think it took some time for Antolotti to usher him in. But Once he was able to prove himself and to take over a starting role, he's never looked back. He's been one of the best midfielders in Serie A, and obviously he's taken that progression in that form over to his, uh, his national team, Spain, and he, he's, he's a starter for Spain heading into the Euro without question. He's uh, silky on the ball. He's confident. He can play in a couple different roles. He can play on the left. He can play deep. He can, you know, push forward. He has a great left foot. Um, it feels like I'm doing like a profile of him, but he's he's a very exciting player. He's a player I am a huge fan of, and I know there's many player uh, people who uh, who got to know him quite a bit when he during his time at, at Betis, and then when he made that move over to Serie A, they're saying, okay, well, what's what's this player gotten him at such a young age at a club like Napoli with a very exciting project, and he's got everything. And I think he's going to be, as you mentioned, uh, a, a, p- a pillar in that midfield in Spain. Look we're going to touch upon, it, obviously, you know, just to kind of make that transition here, uh, they're not so much a squad relying on Madrid and Barca players. And to see a guy like Fabio and Ruiz break through into that starting squad um, at such a young age, I think it's, at the same time, Spain maybe would love to be able to rely on Madrid and Barca players because that's what they've been known for in recent years, uh, more or less, with obviously Atletico Madrid and a couple of other players here and there. But the fact that they got some players all over the world kind of getting different styles, different feelings, and different ultimately, uh, 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 you know, the leagues to play in. I think it's only going to make their squad a little bit more diverse and dynamic. And I think for me to see a Spain squad with a lot of versatility, a lot of different individuals in the squad, it's it's exciting times for Spain. It's maybe not what they're used to seeing with the Javi's, the Iniestas and and you know some of these other players, and just being kind of packed at Atletico, Real, and Barca players. But at the same time, you're having that versatility. There's a lot of talent in La Liga. And it's, it just goes to show you that Spain have a wealth of options to choose from, and they do a great job. I think they're probably it, the, one of the best, if not the best, in having such a great uh, uh, system from the lower ranks up to the senior squad of just bolstering their, their talent pool of players. And these players, they come in every so often. You think, here's Xavi and Iniesta gone, and all of a sudden they say, who's this guy? It's Ruiz. And then you have—they they do such a good job of replenishing, and it just goes to show you just how stocked— they are in that Spain squad, and and Ansu Fati, um, who's another young talent from from Barcelona, a sixteen year old, if I'm correct. It looks as though that FIFA just granted him permission to to uh, to join the Spanish national team. Now, as obviously a sixteen year old, I don't expect him to be a starter or to get many minutes anytime mm-hmm. soon. But that's another one for the future. So overall, when you look at Ruiz, you look at Fati, you look at some of these players that they have coming through the system. The future looks very bright for Spain. And look, if football is cyclical, club level country international it's all cyclical spain had their dominance from 20, 2008 they won 2010 world cup then 2012 euro they uh had a little bit of difficulty the past couple tournaments but they're back spain's back i think they're going to be a powerhouse again and you would look top to bottom and you look at some of the midfield options specifically of course we're speaking on ruiz who who plays in uh, our favorite league Serie a. He he's one for the future he's a player i really really like and i know there's going to be many uh suitors for him and of course it's going to be difficult to deal with Napoli because Aurelio De Laurentiis, uh, like we saw at Khalidou Koulibaly, he's not going to sell him for anything under 100, and he shouldn't. I, I don't think he should be pressured into in strong arms into selling a player who can be a pillar player who doesn't want to leave. You pay a player what he's deserved, what he's worth, and you know you make him a big part of the project, and I think that's what Napoli intend to do.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, definitely exciting times for Napoli in Spain, right? I mean, I, I think you're right on Spain being loaded and back on the come-up, right? I I think they just need to have, like, these younger players just get more minutes into the club, you know, inject that sense of youth within the squad because I think it was just a transitional year. Look, they're not going to be winning every tournament they play in, right? So they eventually had to lose. So, (laughs) Um, yeah. So moving on now over here to America and the MLS, Um, lots of storylines, again, within this league and this season, specifically out west with Los Angeles. Ibra, Carlos Vela, both playing for both LA clubs, respectively. Um, We know how great LAFC has been uh, during the regular season, which is what they play over here in the MLS, and then they have a postseason afterwards, who Ibra's been (laughs) very critical of um, in the papers and in the media. Um, But I want to talk about them as players in terms of the complete history of the MLS, you know, this revamped MLS that we've seen over the past 20 years or so. Where do these guys rank up there with the best players? But for me, Ibra coming in at his age, scoring all the goals that he does, he is the biggest name, and I think, in my opinion, he's had the biggest impact since David Beckham. And then Carlos Vela goes without saying, man. I mean, the guy is quality, and, you know, I mean, he steps up all the time. So what do you what do you think in terms of the best players in uh, the history of well, the I, I think
1: there's, there's several different um, players you can highlight here. I think it's you look back to the extensive history of the DP in the league, and you know, Sebastian Giovinco is another one, right? I think the fact that he was able mm-hmm. to uh, over a couple years, uh, you elevate the game in Toronto, uh, win, win. I think they won the treble, if I'm correct, their version of the treble. They won the cup, they won the Community Shield, they, I mean, the supporter shield. Um, so, you know, the, he's he, his numbers were, were right there, too. He took the league by storm, no doubt. But then you look at guys like Joseph Martinez, you look at Miguel Amiron, um, and what they're doing with that exciting project in Atlanta. But I think this season, if we're just focusing on them, uh, the battle between Zlatan Ibrahimovic and Carlos Vela um, in Los Angeles has been a perfect thing for the league. The league needed something like this, especially from LAFC. They're, they're the team that's in their second year as a franchise. Um, And and LAFC have done, you know, if it wasn't for them probably having one of the greatest seasons, if not the greatest season in MLS history with most goals, um, you know, obviously Vela having uh, his uh, record-breaking 32 goals, uh, you know, that maybe Zlatan and Galaxy would have been kind of the talk of the town. But I think, look, when you look at Zlatan and Vela, it's been a healthy rivalry. That's, uh, uh, I'm excited to see more of, hopefully, both club players stay at their clubs. I think Vela is definitely going to stay. He's a fundamental piece of the project, and he's. but he's also at a different time of his career than Zlatan. Zlatan, is unpredictable. He's an under unpredictable uh, genius, if you will. He, I think he's. Uh, his contract expires in January. There's a possibility that he maybe comes back to Serie A. There's a possibility that he goes maybe back to England. Manchester United need a striker. They have injuries up there. Maybe he goes back and he tries to rescue Manchester United, but... Nevertheless, I think look seeing what Zlatan and Carlos Vela they're they're two of the best DPS in history of the league without question, um, and I think it's a big shout out to what LAFC are doing. Since day one, they brought in Vela with the intention of making him the focal piece of the project, and he's done everything that you they could have possibly wanted from their first DP. And look, Zlatan's always larger than life, and whatever for better for worse, he's always gonna be. Um, in, in the headlines whether you agree with him or not he's outspoken he's vocal he is the biggest believer in himself if you don't believe in himself if you don't believe in yourself then you know uh, your chances are you're going to probably struggle a little bit in this game and I think when it comes to, to Zlatan and his entire career not just in Major League Soccer he he, he knew he was going to come to this league and he was going to dominate and that's exactly what he did and he kind of if this is the end of his career in Major League Soccer he came, he came as quickly as he left and he you know left uh he left a fire, a fire trail in, in the process because he, he was him and like I said him and Vela were exactly what this league needed at this point in time and um, yeah the, the, the DP is always a fascinating thing to watch obviously there's going to be plenty to come down the road and I think these two guys did a did a great job in, in this year to kind of set the tone and to make it more inviting for other players in the prime of their career to kind of come over and want to say, hey, you know what, maybe this is a league I want to, you know, kind of jump in at this point in time. I can make a name for myself. I can uh, elevate my game, elevate my brand in this country and, you know, for, further my career and further my legacy. So shout out to Zlatan and Vela for the great seasons they've had.
0: Yeah. Great job for them. Hopefully, they keep it pushing for the rest of their careers, however long that might last. Okay, question time. Uh, we posted uh, on Twitter for you guys to send in some questions. We did get a pretty good response, so we're just going to be going through those quickly. Um, they're on some of the topics that we covered, so we'll go with Hazem with the first one. How far can Poland go into the Euros with such an incompetent coach? Like, I don't know how to say his name, so I'm just going to give it a crack like Brzezczyk.
1: <laughs> yeah. um, I think Poland could go. I, I think I touched upon. First off, thanks for the question. I appreciate that. Um, I think Poland can go far in the tournament, provided that their coach doesn't hold them back. I think that's a that's a great point. And I think you know I, I belong to a couple chats with a with a group of uh, of of Poland fans, and they're always very outspoken and very vocal. They just don't trust this manager. And I wasn't saying Nawalka was a, was a is a great great coach. any stretch, because I think obviously we saw what he was able to do with the Euro 2016 squad, but conversely saw the downfall of uh, the World Cup disaster in 2018 with a good squad there, and obviously everyone expected them to get out of the group. For me, I think if they're able to build on what they were able to accomplish at the Euro 2016, and maybe get into the quarterfinals again, like they did, then they narrowly lost to Portugal in penalties in that tournament if they're able to kind of get over the hump and maybe get into the semifinals, in a short tournament format like this, obviously, as you know, we see many times as Americans with, you know, March Madness is a prime example of that, and even the NFL playoffs, is if you just get in and you're able to get out of your group, now it's a one-and-done sort of situation. And if things fall your way, yeah, you find yourself maybe in a semi-final, quarterfinal, and who knows if everything kind of goes according to plan. You find yourself in a final tournament, right? In the final of the tournament. And we saw that with Portugal. They were the prime example. They weren't probably the best team in that Euro, but but they were able to get to the finals their way, and they and they went out of winning it. And I think there's ways to navigate these sort of difficult international tournaments. It's not always about, um, you know, who the best team is per se, because I think... We, there's a lot of good teams. There's a lot of quality within some of these teams. It's not just so much cut and dry as, oh, it's Germany, Italy, and Spain as the, the favorites. No. There's a lot of depth. There's a lot of quality to go around. And if Poland can you know, get the most out of their squad, if the manager's able to, to tap into the potential that the squad has, I think he can go relatively far. I don't trust him to maybe go beyond a quarterfinal, but... At the same time, I think if they're able to get to a quarterfinal um, with uh, some of the some of the other nations that are going to be in this tournament, I think it's a pretty good uh, pretty good uh, objective to reach. All things considered, I think the biggest thing for them would be to build on this tournament, a good performance if they're able to get it, and qualify for the next World Cup, and just kind of continue to move the needle forward and, and progress as a, as a nation. Because I think there is uh, a lot of players coming through the pipeline that they can build with for the
0: future. Yeah. Exciting times again for Poland. We'll see how they do in the Euros. Uh, this next one's from Mystios. If Pioli ends up another failure for Milan and I can't see any other outcome, should and Maldini take responsibility and leave the club? Wow, that's very dramatic. I me take this one, right Martino, away. because I
1: think I talked a lot about Pioli and Milan's situation. So if you want to give your answer to this, I think the, the listeners will appreciate that.
0: Okay, then. Um, Yeah, everybody knows how outspoken I am and critical at times of some of the clubs and, you know, any other sports teams that I root for. I think it's a bit dramatic, this question, only simply because, I mean, look, Milan had to cut their losses with everything that was going on, right? So you had to get rid of Gianpaolo. The only really option that they had was Pioli, right? And you hit on it earlier in the podcast. Like The guy's not going to say no when you have the chance to do this. Spalletti wasn't going to give up all that money that Inter still has to pay him. And why would Inter want to let a quality coach go to their city rivals? It just makes no sense, right? Um, it's not going to get any worse than what it was under Giampaolo. It's going to be difficult, obviously, to make the Champions League because Atalanta's off to a great start and other teams are doing better than what they were last year. Um Boban and Maldini taking responsibility and leaving. Now, I think that's just so dramatic. I mean, look, this is their first couple of months within the club. They took accountability with the Gianpaolo um, sacking. But the players that they have bought and integrated into this club so far, almost every single one of them has gotten off to a very good start, um, right? I mean, Benassar had uh, solid ones. Um, You know, I mean, Rafael Loyal looks like just a revelation. He is one of the best bang for your buck signings so far early in the season, not just for Milan, just in general. So, I mean, no, I I think it's dramatic that they should leave the club. Um, Let's see what Pioli brings. I I think they deserve a few years before we can even, um, you know, judge them for that. Um, We'll do one more question here that we have. This one's from Roberto Grossa. This one is a very interesting question, and I've actually often uh, wondered about this myself. Uh, Kasper Schmeichel, uh, goalkeeper for Leicester City, uh, against Switzerland, he was just fantastic this weekend. Uh, and talked about performance. How long before he makes the move to a bigger club and how can you see him excelling at a club outside of the PL? So I, I think he personally he's class, just want to hit on that. He was unbelievable for Leicester City, not just in the season when they won the Premier League, just every other season since he's just been so quality, so consistent. Um, I don't know if he'll make, another, make a move to another club unless it's a, a guaranteed step up because it kind of seems like he's comfortable at Leicester City.
1: I think there's there's many parallels you can draw between um, Kasper Schmeichel and uh, Samir Ardanovic at Inter. All right? Right. I think Samir Sami for, uh, for for several years now has been uh, a top, top goalkeeper. But I think it's just because of the fact that Inter's project and Inter as a club haven't been quite what they used to be. I think that's kind of maybe kind of casted him as an underrated goalkeeper. But in actuality, he's been brilliant. He's been sensational. And there's a reason why he's uh, uh, still at Inter. He's still a a pillar player for them. And I think there's many parallels you could draw between him and Schmeichel. Schmeichel's been with Leicester City, um, you know, for, for quite some time. I think he's actually eclipsed over 300 appearances in total. He's been sensational for Denmark as well. He's at 32 years old, 32, 33, give or take. And when you're a Premier League keeper for a club like Leicester, who are building a pretty steady project, I think they're obviously going to be one of those clubs that loses a player or two every year. It's just it's just what we see with, you know, Maguire, Nungolo, uh, Conte, uh, just to name a few, Ryan Mahrez, you know, just some of the main guys over the past handful of years. But when you look at their squad, you know, you, you see a team that can still make some noise in the Premier League, can still compete, and having a, a, a great team, backstop a great goalkeeper like Kasper Michael in his prime, who is reliable, who is a leader, I'm sure on and off the pitch. I don't think there's any reason for him to leave. I think at this point in time, I'd be stunned. The only way I could see him leaving is if they simply kick him out and they sell him for and they get a substantial offer. Or the player is simply saying, I want to go somewhere else and, and test my my talents and my abilities. It happens. There's a lot of players that say, you know what I'm 32, 33 years old I give all my all to my club. I want to go apply my trade in Italy or I want to try a little, maybe my, my luck in Spain or whatever. But some people like that. They like that comfort for not only themselves and their game but also for their family. And I think that's what sometimes people tend to forget beyond the money, beyond uh, the project is that, you know, is their family happy? Is their family settled? Do, is life in their current situation uh, fruitful and enjoyable? And I think if you look at Kasper Schmeichel's career, he's been one of those steady goalkeepers in the Premier League where you look at him and say, there's no reason for him to leave. Premier League players get paid probably the best of any league. He's had a project, as I mentioned, with Leicester who are always kind of in the thick of things. And, you know, he's... he's been there he's been a staple player for them he's been a, a fundamental player for what uh Leicester City are trying to do so I, I don't see him leaving but I think that's a very good question and I, I think there again there are many similarities between maybe his career and Samir Handanovic in the sense that you probably would have expected a guy like Handanovic through some of those difficult years for Inter to say I'm in the prime of my career I want to go play for a Manchester United or I want to go play in the Premier League but he didn't and I see a little bit of uh you know, Sami and Casper Schmeichel in that they're comfortable. They like where they're at. They like being a, a big focal point of the project. And, you know, look, Schmeichel won the, it was part of that Premier League trophy, uh, you know, that they won a couple years ago, which that's, that, that was sensational. And I think that's something that, you know, obviously kind of binds him to the city, to the club, to the fans. And I, I just don't see him kind of breaking that apart now.
0: Yeah, I, I, I agree wholeheartedly with everything you said there. Now, for the moment you've all been waiting for, it's the player profile. For this week's player profile, we are going to be profiling Fiorentina's Gaetano Castrovilli. Um, he's a 22-year-old midfielder. Really, just came up lately for Fiorentina. Had a very nice match against Milan. Might add he already scored. A Milan fan as well, so that's how you know Matt and I would like him. Uh, so tell me what you've seen from him so far. Uh, again, we highlighted this. It just seems like Italy can't stop turning out turning out talents in the midfield, and Gaetano is just another one of those guys who is off to a really great start uh, for this campaign.
1: And Castro he's he's an interesting subject because um, he didn't take the I guess the the typical route that you would expect from some of the players kind of in the limelight for, for the Italian national team, or at least in contention for it. I, he didn't get the senior call-up yet. I think some people thought he, maybe he was snubbed, but I think if he continues on this pace, he's going he's to be in the, uh, the first-team picture uh, sooner rather than later. But then again, Mancini has options, so it's going to be more difficult to break in. But let me go back to to Casciavilli and really kind of his his rise, if you will, and it's been an immediate one. He's played in most of his previous seasons, have been more in Serie B with Bari and Cremonese, so he hasn't been given that notoriety, that, that exposure that you probably would have want. But the fact that he's been able to um, you know, immediately earn the trust of Vincenzo Montella in the midfield, get starting minutes, and essentially impact right away. He's been one of their better players for Fiorentina. And despite their difficult start, he's been a, a big reason why they've been able to turn it around in recent weeks. I think they're won three in a row, but they're five all five matches unbeaten. And they start to look like a good, squad, solid squad. I think they're in the top of the table, top half of the table, if you will, I think at eighth. So he's a, he's a Mazzalo. And those who are not familiar with that role, he's more like I play in the midfield three. He plays on more of the left or the right side. He is a player that can push forward, he can provide in the uh, offensive phase. But he's also a player who can is really a jack of all trades sort of midfielder, and I'm not going to say he's just like Jacques Bonaventura because I think yes, you can look at maybe some similarities into him. The fact that Jock can get forward, he can um, you create, he can do certain different things. But Castrovili's rise has been palpable, and it's it's happened really quickly. And I don't think many anticipated a player like him through this many games being this impactful and this much of a, of a piece to the project. Um, under Rocco Camiso who who bought the club this past summer, and obviously Montella, who hasn't been shy of of, of singing his praises. He just signed an extension till 2024. Um, so obviously he's he's committed to the project. But you know, with his one goal, one assist, that is easy to sometimes overlook because it's like, well, he's out you know he's not a goal scoring or productive type midfielder. But I think those numbers have the potential to go up and if you look at his stats across the board. He's not a one-trick pony. He is a midfielder who is among the best in Serie A um, in terms of successful dribbles with 2.57 per game, which means that he is creative. He is uh, graceful on the ball. He can push forward. He can do several different things to help you win a match. And you, that's also just really touching on his offensive side. He is a, he's a contributor on the defensive end, 1.6, 1.86 tackles per game. So if I'm looking at a player like Castro this early on in the season, I think he's been one of the, the, the players who has broken out the quickest. I think we can touch on Zaniolo, we can touch on Barella, Sensi, and they've all been good in their own right. But I think there's something to be said about a player who isn't really on the map and then all of a sudden, when he's just given the opportunity how quickly he seizes that opportunity and he's able to make the most of it. And I think that's exactly what we're seeing with Gaetano at Fiorentina, a project that is um, under Comiso. Credit to him what he's been able to do for that team because I think there were some question marks uh, the way that that the Dele Valley family left it. Um, Comiso comes in, he buys it. He refuses offers to sell Chiesa to Juve. He keeps certain players a part of the project. He gets guys like Eric Pogar um, in the midfield as well, Uh, Nikola Milenkovic in the back. Uh, Bartol- Bartolomeu Dragovski as a goalkeeper so they have some pieces around the puzzle but there are a lot of young pieces and I think that's what makes it really exciting is to see a guy like Catano an Italian player in the, in the heart of that project in the heart of that midfield Making waves and, and growing as a player, and he's doing it quite quickly. So I'm excited to see what this kid has in store for the rest of the season. Obviously, he scored a goal against Milan, of course, when the rain's important, right? There's always goals against Milan. Um, but as an Italian national team fan, as a azuri fan, I think the sky's the limit for him. I think he's going to be one of those players that. Uh, maybe not this international break, obviously, because he didn't get the call-up, but over the next call-ups for for those final two games that um, Italy will have in hand, that they maybe can experiment and give some other players an opportunity to show what they can do and show what they can provide going forward. I think Gaetano is going to be a, a player that Mancini has to look, to look towards and give him that opportunity to show... Um, that he is national team worthy, that he is deserving of this moment, and I, I'm just excited for Fiorentina because I think you know it's quick, it's easy to forget the the, the team that Fiorentina, um, uh, you know, are right now because they're not in that the limelight of a of a, U of, a of an Inter of a, of a Napoli and some of these other clubs, but Fiorentina one of the, the main clubs in Italy, and to see them kind of making that rise back up after nearly avoiding relegation last year it's exciting and it's, uh, it's exciting to see like Catano at the heart of it
0: okay so that'll wrap it up there for our player profile this will all wrap up for our episode as well I had such a great time hosting with you Matt as always um, just to talk about some of the stuff again you could email us at stateofplaypod@gmail.com playpod at gmail.com for sponsorship or collaboration of sorts of sorts excuse me um, you could find pets Uh, twitter at pet barisha Um, you'll see him tagged in all the tweets and stuff he runs a lot of the twitter that we do you could find me on twitter at martino puccio Um, matt you just want to reiterate again about the contest and where everyone can find you
1: yes you guys can follow me on twitter at Matt underscore Santangelo for my written articles. I got some things I'm working on, as I mentioned in the previous episode. Um, that's going to be coming out probably in about a month, month and a half. It's a very, I'm very excited about it, and I'm sure you guys will as well. But everything I do in the world of football, you guys can find me on Twitter. And yeah, if you guys haven't entered into the giveaway, like I said, I will reshare it up from the account. But it's pretty straightforward. You retweet the post, you follow, you leave a review. And you give a five-star rating, and yeah, you just uh, reply with the screenshot that you did all that good stuff, and you'll be entered into in to win a great little package of uh, of merch with our uh, good friends and help from North Curve. And like I said, thank you guys so much for the support. I know Martino and I really appreciate it. I know Pet as well. But, uh, let's hope Pet is getting feeling better for the next episode, and he's ready to go for uh, the return of club football next weekend.
0: Yep. Thanks, guys, so much for listening. Please subscribe, write, give us feedback. It really is all appreciated, uh, and let us know. All right, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.